Good morning. Right, so this is a new series we're starting this morning, brand new. Uh, No-Nonsense Christianity, and it's a series based upon the book of James. At the start of the year we did five weeks on Acts, which is 28 chapters long. Now we're going to do 28 weeks on James, which is five chapters long. Um, Well, not quite, but this is going to take us through the summer. Uh, This is going to be quite a meaty series. We're going to get right into the text Um, And it's got a lot to teach us, James. It's got a lot to teach us about how we live as Christians. It's a very practical book. Um, It's in the New Testament, if you're not familiar with the Bible, which is the back third. uh, And it's written, surprise, surprise, by a guy called James. We know this because it starts by saying, James, a servant, or some translations say, slave of God and of Jesus Christ. And... Back in Bible times, letters started with who they were from rather than ended, which kind of makes sense if you think about it, save scanning to the bottom of the letter. Um, There are three Jameses mentioned in the New Testament that it could be written by, but generally it's accepted that the book of James was written by Jesus' half-brother, James. Half-brother, of course, because James' father was Joseph and not God. And he was something of a cantankerous brother. He wasn't really a supporter of Jesus' ministry. Certainly not while he was here on earth. We can read in Mark that during Jesus' ministry, Jesus' family went to take charge of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. He's lost his marbles. He's gone cray cray. (laughs) And we also read in John that even his brothers did not believe him. But try not to judge him too harshly for that. I wonder if any of your siblings or close family members turned around and told you that they were the Son of God, whether or not you would believe them. I would guess not. I certainly wouldn't believe it of my brothers, and I'm sure they wouldn't believe it of me either. And I I read recently that someone said, perhaps the best proof we have that Jesus is who he said he is, is because of the book of James. Because for James to believe that Jesus was the Son of God, it would have taken something truly miraculous. And we can read in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, um, that Paul tells us that after his resurrection, Jesus specifically appeared to James. It says he appeared to the apostles and he appeared to James. And I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation. You can just imagine it, can't you? Hi, James. Oh, Jesus. Um, Didn't you die? Yep. Son of God. Told you so. (laughs) But after Jesus appeared to James, he became a believer. But not just a believer, he became a wholehearted follower of God. He went after him full force. And in fact, James became somebody who was really important in the early church. Paul describes him in his letter to the Galatians as a pillar, a supporting structure in the early church alongside Peter and John, two of Jesus' closest followers. He became very prominent indeed. And part of his role in the early church as a pastor and a leader was to communicate with the believers. Something he did through an open letter. You may have seen some open letters floating around on Facebook after the election. Dear Mr Cameron, what are you going to do about so and so? But this wasn't an open letter to one person. It was an open letter to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. As it says at the very start of the letter. And that's the Jewish believers that he's writing to. Now James, 
if you remember from our studies in Acts, is somebody who actually advocates writing to the Gentiles, not the Gentiles, the Gentiles. Acts 15, at the council, he talks about including them in this message of salvation. But he doesn't mention him in this letter, which tells us it was probably written very early indeed, somewhere between AD 45 and 48, making it one of the earliest, if not the earliest, writings that we have in the New Testament. So not only are we looking at a letter that's written by Jesus' half-brother, not only are we looking at a letter that's written by one of the pillars of the early church, but we're looking at a letter that was written very soon after Jesus' ascension, probably within 20 years or so at the start of the early church. So that's a bit of history, but what about James himself? What sort of a man was he? Well, of course, we can only speculate. You know, he's been dead some time now. Um, But as we read through the letters, you get a sense of the sort of person he was. He was a no-nonsense sort of guy, hence the title of our series. He pulled no punches. He went in full force. He wasn't afraid to call people's religion worthless or useless or adulterous or in some cases even dead. He's a practical man as well. He doesn't just tell believers what they should believe, but he tells them how they should do it. He gives advice on how they should be living their lives. And he was also a man of great imagination. He uses all sorts of illustrations in his letters. He talks about um, waves and flowers and shadows and horses and boats and springs and fire and all of these different things. Anything he can do to communicate to the people he's writing to. I wonder if that's a trait he picked up from his older brother. But what was his point? What was he trying to do? What is the point of the letter? What is James' aim? James isn't writing a gospel. He's not trying to convince anyone of the truths of Jesus. He's writing to those that believe already. (coughs) And he's trying to teach the believers maturity. He's trying to teach them how to grow up in their faith. It says in Hebrews 6 verse 1, Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. James wants the believers to grow up. He wants their lives to reflect the reality of their faith. Amelie, my daughter, has become somewhat obsessed with the idea of being a grown-up recently. She's starting big school in September, which is, you know, reception primary school. Um, and she is now a grown-up, and the other morning I heard her yelling me from <coughs> the toilet, and it was early in the morning, so I wasn't quite with it, um, but she sounded in distress, so I, I forced myself out of bed, and I found her um, folded in half inside the toilet. Um, <laughs> when I asked her why she wasn't using her seat that we provide for her, uh, she said, because I'm a grown-up, Daddy, I'm a grown-up now. <laughs> but of course James isn't talking about physical maturity James is talking about spiritual maturity he wants the believers to grow in spirit and what is spiritual maturity? well let's just look at what it isn't to start with spiritual maturity is nothing to do with age it doesn't matter how long you've been alive some of us have been alive longer than others here this morning it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian or how long you've been in the church There are those that are much younger or new in the faith that are more mature spiritually than those that have been around for a long time. Spiritual maturity has nothing to do with appearance either. 
It doesn't matter how you look or how you dress. Certainly there are those here this morning that look like they may be more spiritually mature. There's those that look like they may be spiritually immature, but I'll point at no one. Um, I've been noticing recently uh, more and more grey hairs, and I'm trying to convince myself that it gives me a distinguished, (laughs) mature look, um, rather than just looking a bit old. Spiritual maturity has nothing to do with achievement either. You can accomplish a lot without being mature. I read this week that um, Lewis Hamilton has recently signed a new deal with Mercedes for £27 million a year. That's over £74,000 a day for driving a car fast. Last time I drove my car fast, I had to pay the government money. (laughs) (coughs) I'm not too thrilled about that, but spiritual maturity has got nothing to do with achievement either, nor academics. You know, I've got so many friends that are studying for masters and doctorates, and I'm in complete awe of them, because I I just don't know how they, they have the patience to study as they do. But you can have all the degrees in the world and still not be spiritually mature. So if it's not age, appearance, achievement or academics, then what? Well, spiritual maturity is to do with attitude. It's to do with our character. It's to do with how we respond to situations. It's who we are in the dark, as someone once said. We're to have a Christ-like attitude. We're to try and be more and more like Jesus. Paul, in his letter to Galatians, outlines nine characteristics of the Spirit. Here we go, pop quiz. (laughs) Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Very good. But James, thankfully, is much more practical-minded, and he not only tells us the characteristics, but tells us how we should be living this way. He gives us tips and he gives us tests and ways in which we can measure ourselves to see whether or not we are really spiritually mature. And there are five chapters in James, as I mentioned already, and this morning I just want to go through each of the five chapters, not in their entirety, um, and just draw out five different things, different tests that we can look at to see if we are spiritually mature. Now, of course, if uh, James had been around today, Um, He wouldn't have sent a letter, because, you know, who does that anymore? Um, I'm sure he would have sent an email, or perhaps he would have uh, tweeted his top tips out. So I've entitled the talk today, Tweets on Maturity. And if you happen to be using Twitter during today's service, rather than uh, paying attention, you can find his Twitter account, at James Slave of God. Go on, I dare you. And rather helpfully, he's only sent five tweets, and they're the five points of this sermon. Funny that. So the first one then it is. This is taken from James one, verse two to four. Whenever there is trouble, remain positive. This is the perfect opportunity for your faith to grow. Or as James puts it, consider it pure joy. How do we handle problems when they come? And they always do, don't they? Problems always come. That's the nature of this life, that we're going to face problems. But what is our response? Do we A, curl up into a little ball, hope it goes away, shut the windows and doors, binge watch Netflix and just shut out the world? Do we B, get angry at the world, break something, shout at the kids, shout at the wife, shout at the neighbour, kick the dog? 
do we see complain about the situation to everybody that we know? Post something on Facebook, look for sympathy. Or do we, D, remain positive and trust that God will see us through? James writes in chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, the person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. The first mark of maturity, James says, is how we respond to pressure, how we respond to negativity in our lives. The second mark, or tweet, is taken from James 2, verse 8. If you can keep the law, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. Hashtag spiritual maturity, hashtag share the love. The second mark of a mature person is how we respond to other people. Do we love our neighbour as ourselves? James being the practical-minded person that he is, he gives us um, some specifics in chapter 2. Verse 1 to 3, he says, don't show favouritism. Don't be stuck up. Don't look down on other people and treat them as less than yourself. Verse 4, he says, don't judge other people by their appearance, by the way they look, by the way they dress their clothes. Verse 6, he says, don't insult people or exploit them. Don't take people for granted. The first test is how we react to problems. The second test is how we react to people. In Matthew 25, Jesus is talking to his disciples about what's to come. He's talking to them about the end times. And he talks about separating people based on how they have treated others. Matthew 25, verse 34 says, The king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, When were you hungry and we fed you, or thirsty and we gave you something to drink? When were you a stranger and we invited you in, or needed clothes and clothed you? When were you sick or in prison and we visited you? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And you see, Jesus sorts the people, it says, as a shepherd sorts the sheep and the ghost, based on how they treat other people. Not based on church attendance not based on Bible knowledge, not based on standing in the church or the community or anything else, just on how we treat others. How do we respond to those in need? This next one's tricky. This is from James 3, verse 2. But we all mess up. If we can control what we say, we are on the right track. Hashtag spiritual maturity. Hashtag tongue technique. A mature person has mastered their mouth. Do we control what we say? In the same way a doctor might use our tongue to check our physical health, God can use what we say as a measure of our spiritual health. Are we mindful of what comes out of our mouth, the effect it has on other people? Do we involve ourselves in gossip? 
I read this week that gossip is hearing something you like about somebody that you don't. And you know, sometimes churches can be the worst places for gossip, can't they? You know, we, we want to encourage community and we want to encourage spending time together and caring for each other and in that sometimes um, gossip arises. And sometimes under very good intentions, oh yeah, I, I need to know about that so I can pray for them. But is what we say helpful? Does it build people up? And we need to bear in mind today as well that our lips include our fingertips. It's not just about what we say, but it's about what we post online. It's about how we communicate. Most communication these days isn't verbal at all. It's through social media. And the things that we send to each other. And in chapter 3, James gives five different illustrations about the power of the tongue. We're going to get into this over the next few weeks. Uh, And he calls it a a bit that you'd put in a horse's mouth that you would use to control the animal or or like a a rudder on a ship that would steer a large ship. And the point he's making is though the tongue is small and seemingly an insignificant part of our body, what we say can control the entire direction of our lives. It's hugely important. It can cause delight or destruction. It can be a force for good or it can be a force for evil. In Ephesians 4 verse 9, Paul writes, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. When we talk, do we do it for the benefit of others or for the benefit of ourselves? Does it build people up? Does it encourage or does it tear down and destroy A mature person manages their mouth. James says in chapter 1 verse 26, those who consider themselves religious yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. I told you he uh, pulls no punches. Does what we say reflect what's on the inside? Jesus said that the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And if we're listening this morning and thinking that maybe we haven't got a tight rein on what we're saying, then maybe we need to check what's on the inside. Do we have a heart that's full of love for God and other people? Or do we have a heart that's full of something else? The fourth test from chapter 4, verse 1. Why are you fighting and arguing? It's because you want your own way all the time. Hashtag spiritual maturity, hashtag peacemaker, not troublemaker. He's talking about conflict, arguments. As you read on into verse 2, it says, You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And the fourth test for a mature Christian is whether or not we are a peacemaker or a troublemaker. Do we like to argue? we find ourselves getting into fights far too often with those around us? Do we get too defensive or do we hurt others too easily? In writing to the Corinthians, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as those who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. He's calling them babies. He's saying, you bunch of babies. Why? For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you. 
arguing and fighting with those around us is a sign of immaturity. As we go on to spiritual maturity, there should be less conflict in our lives. And we need to look at those areas of our conflict, that where there is conflict in our lives, and ask why. Why is there conflict at home? Why is there conflict at work or with that friend or with that family member? And James gives two reasons for conflict in chapter 4. Verse 3 says, When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And the first cause of conflict is selfishness. I want this. I want that. I've got an iPhone and an iPad. Have I got an eye problem? Is it all about me? Do I put my needs in front of others? When we pray, do we only pray for ourselves and what we need and our own needs or do we pray for others as well? It's a good test for us. Proverbs 13 verse 10 says the pride leads to conflict. It guarantees conflict, a prideful attitude. In Paul's great discourse on love, the one that's read out at every wedding that I've ever been to, ever, um, it says that love is not prideful, or in the NLT it translates it this way, love does not insist upon its own way. And I love that version, it does not insist upon its own way. And I love that version because I can imagine myself arguing with people and thinking, am I insisting on my own way? More often than not, yes I am. And the second cause is found in verse 11 um, through to 12 where it says, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge. Judgmentalism. We're all guilty of this one, aren't we? We all judge other people. Unfortunately, it seems that Christians have become known for judging other people. It seems to be one of the media's favourite ways to characterise us. We are judgmental. And I have friends that I've longed to see in church but won't come because they fear being judged. And there are three reasons why we shouldn't judge. Firstly, we're not God. Anytime we judge someone, we make ourselves God, and James says that there is only one judge and one lawgiver. Secondly, we don't know all the facts. We might think we do, I'm sure we do most of the time, think we know all the facts, but we just don't. And thirdly, we don't know people's motives. We don't know their hearts. We don't know why they made the decisions that they have, but he does. And that's why he's the judge, and not us. So selfishness and judgmentalism lead to conflict. A fourth sign of maturity is someone who is a peacemaker, someone who looks for ways of making and keeping the peace with others, not stirring up conflict. James 3 verse 8 says, Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. And the final <coughs> tweet this morning is be patient and prayerful until he returns. If you are right with him, your prayers are powerful and effective. Hashtag spiritual maturity, hashtag trust in him. And this is really taken from a few verses in the last chapter of James, um, chapter 5, because it's a theme of the chapter. He uses the word patient four times and prayer is used seven 
times. And he talks about us being patient like a farmer waits for his crops to grow, trusting that God has the answer. And um, my son, Elijah, has a real issue with waiting, particularly when it comes to dessert (laughs) with dinner. Um, He wants it now. He's not prepared to wait. And he doesn't always understand that um, after dinner doesn't mean no. It doesn't mean to say he's never going to get the pudding. He just has to eat all of his green vegetables first. Um, And it's difficult to communicate to him. But we can be like that, can't we? We can be fickle. We can pray to God for something. And then when we don't get the answer that we need within the next five seconds, we just give up and think, hang it all, and we stop trusting and we go a different way. But God is saying, James is saying that a test of maturity is someone who is patient, someone who is prayerful and prepared to wait for the answer. Even if that means waiting for a really long time. So there we go, there's five tests of maturity. How do we handle problems? Do we get frustrated? Do we complain? Are we negative? Or are we positive under pressure? Are we sensitive to other people? Are we concerned about their needs, about their desires, about their wants? Or do we only see ourselves? Is our world all about us and not about others? Can we manage our mouths? Have we learnt to keep quiet when we need to? To not go with that first thing that pops into our head that we're desperate to say, but really shouldn't. Are we troublemakers or peacemakers? Do we stir things up and cause conflict or do we calm things down and create peace? And are we patient and prayerful about our lives? How long can you wait for an answer to prayer without giving up? I realise there's a lot in that this morning and I realise it's not um, a particularly easy message. Certainly it's one that requires us to look inward and think about whether or not we are meeting those marks of spiritual maturity or whether or not actually there are areas in our lives where we need to grow up a bit. And as we kind of spend the next... 14 weeks or so with James, we're going to get into some of this in a bit more detail and it's not going to be uh, easy listening, some of it. I think we're a society often that doesn't like being told what to do, (laughs) doesn't like being told that maybe we haven't quite got it right. You know, the the world teaches us that whatever you believe is fine as, as long as you're not hurting anyone. But actually, James is going to tell us that there are ways in which we should be living and there are ways in which we could be doing better. But of course, it doesn't matter what we think of each other here. The one who matters is God. And so I'd like us just to finish our time together this morning with um, just a few moments of personal reflection. I wonder if the band could come back and join us. Perhaps if we could just bow our our heads together and just spend a little bit of time thinking through those marks of maturity and seeing if there's anything that we need to repent of, anything we need to ask for God's help with. Do we need to change our attitude from 
one of griping to gratitude? Do we need to handle that situation that we're facing right now a bit better? Have we perhaps been going about it the wrong way? Are we sensitive to others? Or are we too caught up in our own world? Do we miss those that are right next to us because we're so wrapped up in ourselves, our partners or our kids or our co-workers and neighbours? Some of us, I think, maybe need to say sorry for being a gossip or talking about someone in a way that they shouldn't. Do what we say... Does what we say build people up or does it tear them down? Are we peacemakers? Have some of us got a temper or too much pride or are we too judgmental? We need to leave things to God. And are we patient and prayerful? Do we need to grow in our prayer lives? Do we need to spend more time waiting on him? rather than running ahead ourselves.